how Georgia's races for 2026 are already shaping up. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy. We are two of your political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome. And be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, leave a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Patricia, there's so much still to unpack from a very, very busy weekend at the state Republican convention. And it's hard to come back from last weekend's convention and not think that some bets are already being laid for three years down the road. So we're going to talk a lot about that in this episode. Yes. And this is a conversation we're going to have on the podcast because this is a conversation right now in Georgia that's already happening behind the scenes. These are dynamics that are being discussed. They're being taken into account with a number of issues as people are seeing one candidate or another potential candidate going forward or taking an action. In the background, there's this chatter of, oh, there are these races looming. There's something else coming. And so that's why we're going to talk about it today. It's not reporting on who's running for what, when, but it is a conversation that we do think our listeners should know about because it's happening and it's being taken into account all over the state. Plus, we're going to take your questions from the listener mailbag and also do our weekly who's up and who's down for this week. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Okay, let's set the stage at this weekend's Republican convention. Because Governor Kemp was not the only leading Republican to skip that two-day event. A couple other big names did as well. One of them is Attorney General Chris Carr. The other is Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Those two also bypassed the event, skipped it, boycotted it, however you want to put, phrase it. But meanwhile, two other big names were in attendance and had gladly gave big speeches before the convention. That was Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones and former U.S. Senator Kelly Leffler. Both of them were there. Both of them had got warm receptions, I would say, from the delegates. And both of them talked a little bit about why they decided to go, even when Governor Kemp and others did not. Yes. And these are two people who we hear about quite a bit in the grassroots for different reasons. Burt Jones, now that he's the lieutenant governor, has been able to make some moves on the Senate floor to really endear himself to conservatives statewide. More behind the scenes, but also maybe more impactful, Kelly Loeffler has been spending an immense amount of money registering voters conducting polling, being out in the field, getting out around the state quite a bit, meeting with small grassroots organizations. And then she's been seeding state senators' campaigns for their own reelections. And so she has become a really, really interesting, I think, probably soon to be integral piece of the fabric of the Republican Party here in the state of Georgia. That was certainly not at all the case when she was appointed to the U.S. Senate. She was a very large, high-dollar donor, but not as much visible at the grassroots. That's changed a lot. And so her presence at the convention and, and the kind of presence she had at the convention was also noteworthy. 
Yeah, you look, she's been working to build up the grassroots support. We've said this on the show before. She's close to a billionaire. Maybe she is a billionaire. We're not exactly sure how much she's worth. She has a private jet. We do know that. She could be spending her weekends in Paris or wherever she wants, not in Bainbridge. But that's where she's spending a lot of time, you know, working with local grassroots Republicans, particularly in the Senate, as you mentioned. So she clearly has her eye on something. We're not sure if it's going to be governor. It could be U.S. Senate. It could be a comeback bid for U.S. Senate, if, if, especially if Governor Kemp does not decide to challenge John Ossoff in 2026. A lot remains to be seen, but we already know those moves are being made. The other attendee of the convention who made some waves was the lieutenant governor. Now, he's been making waves in the Capitol as well. He's aligned himself with Governor Kemp on some key issues like public safety issues and some budget issues. But he's also broken from Governor Kemp, particularly on hospital deregulation, on on ending or changing a program we know as certificate of need. And also he recently took aim at DEI initiatives in public universities in Georgia. Those are two efforts where he is not only breaking from the Governor Kemp, but also trying to build some grassroots fervor, some grassroots support because we know that as, as wealthy as Kelly Leffler is, Burt Jones is also very, very wealthy. Both these candidates are unique because they could both self-fund their gubernatorial campaigns. And as we saw from the last couple cycles, you know, gubernatorial campaigns can cost well over $100 million in Georgia. Yeah, Kelly Leffler was born on a farm or grew up on a farm in Illinois, had a very different life than she has now. She went to college in Illinois, went into finance. She told a story on a podcast one time about seeing her father get rates for commodities for their products on the farm. And that made her interested in kind of commodities trading. And that is how she got into finance. She ended up then moving to Atlanta, working in the industry, and then marrying Jeff Sprecher, who owns the Intercontinental Exchange, just a huge business that one of its assets is the New York Stock Exchange. So they are an immensely wealthy couple here in Atlanta. Burt Jones grew up in Georgia, went to private schools up in Atlanta, and went to University of Georgia. And his father is extremely wealthy, but he's been able to parlay that as well as his interest in elected office to become a real player here in the state. I would say that that family money played a big role in his ability to really dominate that lieutenant governor's race. And he has, I think, really made the most of the opportunity. I think especially with that DEI initiative that he announced after the legislature was out of session. Mm -hmm. And it looked like it was certainly the kind of choice to go big on a very conservative message. It was happening simultaneously in different states with some of those states' most conservative leaders as well. It was a way to put himself on the map of these kind of grassroots social wedge issues where Governor Kemp does not play as much of a role. So building out that lane for himself as the go-to statewide social issues, and even beyond abortion, you know, I think we're when you get into DEI initiatives, you're even getting into a different level of grassroots activists who are interested in that. That, I think, was a way for him to really forge his own way with a political lane here in the state. And so that's something that was, uh, you know, very clearly a deliberate choice. And I think we'll continue to see those kinds of choices out of Burt Jones. He's going to need to distinguish himself not just from Brian Kemp, but from some of the other really clearly ambitious people here in the state who are interested, likely also in taking the statewide runs in the next couple of years here as well. 
It'll be interesting to see how these candidates line up because clearly Burt Jones and Kelly Leffler, by showing up in the convention, are lining themselves up with the, the sort of more hardline Republicans because that was a group that was much more pro-Trump, much more a hardline Republican than the general Republican electorate. But that's also the group that will help define and help shape and help decide the 2026 nominee. Meanwhile, we have the two others who decided not to come. Brad Raffensperger, let's start with there, Secretary of State, who is not beloved of the MAGA crowd. We know that. The former president supported a challenger to Raffensperger last year, Jody Heiss, who went down in flames, yet still had some solid support among the the GOP base that, that also supports Donald Trump. Raffensperger is very conservative too, but at the same time, he has defied the president's demand to overturn the election results and has got some kind of middle of the road swing independent voter support in the process. He's also fabulously wealthy. He's also a very, very rich man who could self-finance at least a big part of his campaign. So he's no one to, to ignore, even with his problems among some of the base. He could be a wild card in all this. I don't know that he'll, he could also run for a third term as Secretary of State or, or call it quits altogether or run for U.S. Senate. That's the fascinating thing about these, these first three characters here. And Raffensperger, you know, I think we went into the 2022 primaries thinking of him also as not somebody who was favored by the base and therefore likely to lose his primary election. That just obviously did not turn out to be the case. He really had a result that I think surprised just about all political watchers here in the state, particularly in his primary, um, defeated Congressman Jody Heiss by a solid margin, despite Donald Trump's very best efforts to knock Raffensperger out of that race. I think that had a lot to do with Raffensperger's crossover appeal in the, here in the state. It's important that in Georgia, those are open primaries. So anybody who wants to vote in a primary can, regardless of their party affiliation, there is no party registration here in Georgia. So anybody who even considers themselves a Democrat can vote in that Republican primary and vice versa. It's just whatever you want to do. That can really make a difference in some of these primaries that are very, very high profile. And I would say that Raffensperger's fell into that category as well. So he does have this kind of X factor appeal that is, I think, hard for other candidates around the state to get their finger on. I was talking to a Republican strategist recently who is likely to be somebody who's going to help one of the statewide candidates. And he said, you know, who I would be most worried about would be Raffensperger, somebody to face in a Republican primary because they just don't know exactly how to run against him. And so he would be somebody who would be a little bit of a wild card. And so I think that's why we talk about him. We hear voters talking about him. And he certainly came through his most recent election much more successfully than anybody had imagined. So he's somebody for sure to keep an eye on. I think also that brings to the fore the question of whether or not the 2020 election will play any role in these future elections. We certainly saw Raffensperger take a very different path than somebody like Burt Jones did, who was initially named as a target in Fannie Willis's investigation, but taken off that target list later. I think people's roles in the 2020 election will continue to define them in this state by voters going forward. And if not by voters, then most certainly by their opponents going forward. And the fourth name we want to focus on is Attorney General Chris Carr who was the state's leading economic development commissioner before he was tapped to be attorney general. He's won several elections now uh, against strong Democratic opponents. And before all that, he was also the top advisor, the chief of staff to the late U.S. Senator Johnny Isaacson. 
Chris Carr is another candidate who could run for governor or U.S. Senate, depending on, on, on how the race, the rest of the race shapes up. But he is very much looked at as a almost a definite at this point. We'll see. But, but a lot of folks see him as a definite candidate for one of those two higher offices. And he's also very closely tied to Governor Kemp. And he's a candidate who's been out there as an incumbent now talking about public safety, anti-crime measures, gang crackdowns, the sort of thing that resonates with the Republican audience, particularly in polls that we see that show public safety is one of the top issues for GOP primary voters. Greg, you took the words right out of my mouth. The fact that Chris Carr does play such a leading role on public safety and public safety is consistently one of the top two issues that we hear from voters really, really matter to them. And there's no sign that that's going to change anytime soon. So you'd have to look at somebody like Chris Carr as, first of all, because of his age, he's a young guy, because of his statewide success already, the fact that he's already been elected state, statewide, and the fact that he's has this leading role on one of the top issues here in the state. Absolutely somebody who we are watching and potentially expecting to do something in the future here in the state. So that is not a complete list. Other names we're watching, I'll just go over them quickly. Insurance Commissioner John King, mm-hmm. he has a solid base of support and could definitely run for higher office. Ag Commissioner Tyler Harper, for sure. He, he is also very wealthy, also newly elected. Young guy, always out on the campaign trail, has a good work ethic. The folks who work with him say that they can't keep up. <laughs> and so we'll see. He also has a new TV, a TV, now what do you call it? It's a he also has a, a new marketing campaign digital campaign focusing on him as a Georgia grown and the ag department's Georgia grown initiative that will get help raise his name recognition. And then there's chief justice, Michael Boggs of the Georgia Supreme court, who is seen as a potential contender. And of course there's members of the congressional delegation who could seek to take a step up to statewide office. Buddy Carter's name always comes up. Drew Ferguson's name often comes up. Austin Scott ran for governor way back when he could run again. And then there's always the specter that Marjorie Taylor Greene could either seek a governor's seat or Senate seat. We'll see about that. That is all that comes. Let's talk about the other side of the aisle, though, because we've talked a lot about, about Republicans. We're used to that because, you know, when we're in the run-up to the 2022 race, it was always seen, to me at least, as inevitable that Stacey Abrams would run. I, I never really doubted, even though she wasn't firm on it, she wasn't saying publicly she was firm on it. She, there was all sorts of hints behind the scenes that she had already made up her mind. In this case, there's not that, you know, we, we, she has not ruled out a third bid for office. She'd be a formidable candidate, even in a third run, even after losing to governor Kent by about eight points, seven, seven plus points. But now there's a number of activists who say it's time for some other Democrats to step up. There's other activists who want, who want Stacey Abrams to get back in the game. The, to me though, if Stacey Abrams doesn't run, which I, I don't think she will, it's early, but I don't think she will. But if she doesn't run, to me, the name to beat, the person to beat on the Democratic side is Congresswoman Lucy McBath. Yes, we certainly hear Lucy McBath's name as a potential candidate for governor. And she is somebody who has won in Georgia's fastest growing area, that sixth district and the seventh district now. And this is really interesting. Her commercials run in the Atlanta media market, which covers about 60% of the state, if not a little bit more than that. And she has had the kind of money to run those commercials 
quite a bit. Everybody in the Atlanta market runs those ads and they're going to reach that number of people. But she's had an unusually high level of funding because she's somebody who national donors know very well because of her role on gun safety. Her son was killed when he was shot at a gas station. And that has become really the sort of the origin story of her role in politics and the defining issue of her of her time in Congress, along with some healthcare issues. She's done a few other things, but I would say gun safety is very clearly her number one issue. She's best known for that. She has gotten very high levels of funding from Michael Bloomberg's gun safety organization and is somebody who is seen as has the possibility to raise money very, very quickly, very high dollar amounts, has a lot of success in the population centers where she needs it. She's an African-American woman. There are a lot of pieces to her bio that make her a candidate statewide to for sure be watching. Another name that I hear is Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens, somebody who is still relatively new on the scene, quite frankly. I mean, he well, certainly he was an Atlanta city councilman. He has not been in the office of mayor very long. But when other people mention names to me of somebody they would like to see run statewide, and some of these are Republicans. <laughs> they said that they would like to see Andre Dickens. He has a very sunny personality. I think he's run through an extremely rough patch with the Public Safety Training Center. That is something that looks like it could continue to give him some real problems as mayor. So that's the type of thing that really needs to play itself out. It's something where he's going to really need to deliver a successful story at the end of that in order to be a you know not only reelected but then to be able to consider some other higher office but he's he is somebody whose name continues to come up to me not from his staff not from consultants being like hey guess what you know (laughs) he's somebody who whose name organically pops up and it comes to me with with some level of frequency and not just from democrats yeah and another a couple more names to watch savannah mayor van johnson former state senator Jen Jordan and former democratic state and former state representative Bean Wim. Those are some other names to keep an eye out. Going back to Mayor Dickens real quick, Patricia, you made this great point in a recent episode that as, as, as troubling as the public safety center has been to him with his base of support in Atlanta, it could be exactly the thing that could help win statewide votes, right? On a, from, from more moderate members, from more swing voters, and even maybe some Republicans in a statewide race who look back and say that his support for the for the expanded training for firefighters and law enforcement officers and police officers it would be a benefit. Well, although you know, there's no doubt it could certainly hurt him in a 2025 re-election bid for the mayor of Atlanta. Yeah, and they're always some wild card, somebody who could potentially come out of the private sector, somebody who mm-hmm. could self-finance, come in with either have a high name ID or create a high name ID very quickly. It does seem at least at the statewide level, occasionally having no voting record is extremely helpful, particularly if you're talking about running for a Senate seat. So there are what's great about politics is sometimes, excuse me, sometimes in Georgia, All the times in Georgia, we get surprised a lot around here. And so I will not be surprised if we hear somebody put their name forward in 2026 who we were like, oh, wow. So that's going to be that's it's just that kind of it's just that kind of state now. It's a battleground state. Either side has the potential to win. And that immediately then becomes very attractive to people who used to maybe be turned off by the idea of getting involved in politics. But if they think they could take a run and win, then all of a sudden it gets a lot more attractive. 
basically, who is the next David Perdue or Kelly Leffler? Because both those candidates kind of came out of the blue. I mean, we knew we knew of David Perdue, you know, a year or so before he ran, but definitely one of those upstart insurgent candidates. Okay, let's take a quick break. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, your host, Greg Bluestein and Patricia Murphy. We're also two of the authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get three months of unlimited digital access for less than a dollar, just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast so you always know what's really going on. Okay. We now go to our listener mailbag, which you can now call in anytime. Leave a question. And we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. Producer Shaney B is standing by. Producer? <laughs> producer. Shaney, what do you got Snapping for us your today? Oh, producer. Producer. <laughs> producer. <laughs> Right away, Mr. Bluestein. Where's, where's my old gray? Mr. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm here. I come bearing phone calls. We had a lot of calls to the Politically Georgia podcast hotline. The number, by the way, is 404-526-AJCP. I guess, I guess you can't really call it a number if it has letters. How much did that cost to get a special AJCP number? I mean, that's, I mean, that's that much class. in well, demand, by the way. You probably had to man. buy that on the black market. Half of this year's salary. But hey, I'll, I'll take one for the team. <laughs> Leroy, the new editor. Andrew, the new publisher there. You know, we get a new phone number right when they get in. It's great. I thought that was pretty cool. Atlanta Journal-Constitution Patricia. That's a great phone number. <laughs> so, but you call anytime, just leave it on the voicemail. By the way, I, I'm finding out that I think there's a 30 second limit because it's cutting some people off. So, oh, so gosh. you'll have to out with it. Okay. So if you hear anything that's cut off, it wasn't me. It was the, <laughs> the, the new hotline, but that's okay. We'll, we'll work with it. Let's start off with a little bit of listener love, huh? This is Jim in Roswell. Yes, I just listened to your most recent podcast on the convention. I'm a former, I, I was a Republican. I am a never Trumper, never MAGA kind of guy. And I find that you guys offer really objective information. And I really appreciate it. That's how I get most of my political news. I get most of my information from your great articles and podcasts. Thank you so much. Jim and Roswell, thank you so much. You can vote for us next time. <laughs> I, I'm just kidding. Jim, you know, that's the exact kind of feedback that we are always hoping for. 
this is a really difficult political environment to report in, to be honest with you. We want to always respect voters and voters' opinions, but we also want to make sure that candidates are telling the truth, that voters are getting the information that they need, and that your leaders are being honest and forthright with you. Occasionally, when you report those things, you're called the fake news, but that can't be helped. <laughs> in fact, it has to be done. But we really appreciate that kind of feedback. That is going to that is going to keep me rolling right into the weekend. I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you, Jim. I agree completely with Patricia. Thank you so much for your call. And yeah, that that look, our job is to provide fact-based information about what's happening in Georgia. And so that's what we set out to do every day. And it's listeners like you and readers like you who make that job possible for us. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts. What else we got, Shaney B? Okay, next on the line, we have Dave with a question about some local district races. What would be the next congressional district for Republicans and Democrats flip sides like Lisa McBath did a few years ago and Richmond Corby did last year, especially with like the Supreme Court decision out Alabama on their redistricting. Look forward to hearing about it and I will send it every week. Thanks. Great question, Dave. I mean, look, the, without the Supreme Court ruling, and we'll talk about that in a second, but as things stand now, the closest district might be Sanford Bishop's district down in Southwest Georgia. That's the district held by an incumbent Democrat for decades. And it looks like Republicans have tried to make a run at it the last couple cycles. Sanford Bishop's in strong stance. He's had solid victories over Republicans the last few election cycles. But if that seat were to be vacant, Republicans could have a really strong shot at at least making it very, very competitive, depending on who the Republican candidate is, who the Democratic candidate is. But the second part of your question is interesting as well, because there is a chance, given the Supreme Court's ruling out of the Alabama case, that it boosts the chances of Georgia lawsuits that seek to redraw at least one more district to be a majority-minority district that could give Democrats a better chance at taking another district. That could require a whole new redrawing of the maps. We're not sure how that could look. We're not sure which Republican incumbents district would both most be you know, at risk by this overhaul, but it could lead to a very competitive Democratic primary and a whole new set of elections that we'll be much more closely watching than right now, where it seems that most incumbents are safe. Yes, that question about the Supreme Court in particular, Dave, is the question of not just the moment, but of the future. And I've spoken with a number of legal experts who think that there's a pretty decent chance that those lines might get redrawn because the lawsuits, the lawsuit in Alabama had a very similar lawsuit to it filed um, here in Georgia, along the same lines, making the same arguments as the one that the Supreme Court decided to take up and made its decision on. And so it is anticipated that Georgia could easily have its own lines found unconstitutional based on that finding by the Supreme Court. Now, there are a lot of steps that would have to happen between now and then. This is the speculation. And frankly, by Democrats, it's the best case scenario because they believe that when the Georgia delegation after redistricting went from eight Republicans and six Democrats to then nine Republicans and five Democrats, despite the fact that the statewide elections were, com were coming closer and closer and the demographics were beginning to favor Democrats more and more, that very clearly looked to them and I think to most people and even to Republicans as a case of gerrymandering and potentially based on race. So 
that sixth district in particular is one that I would keep a very close eye on. That is a district that Democrats would like very much to see redrawn because that is the one that gave the advantage to Republicans where it was advantage Democrats pretty clearly. Cobb County in particular has trended much more Democratic. That's one that was sort of they carved it up in order to make it more favorable to Rich McCormick. So McCormick is having actually, I would say, a really good first term up in Congress, but that's a district that I think you'd have to look at very carefully. I also think that the 14th district, Marjorie Taylor Greene, it's not going to flip anytime soon at all. But if you're changing the 6th, you'd probably have to get into changing the 14th as well. That 75 corridor population is exploding right there. And that's something when the population starts to change, you start to see new faces in those districts. Eventually, over time, that can start to really yield very different results as well. So it's going from very rural to less rural, and that's something to keep an eye on. And remember, the last redistricting, Marjorie Taylor Greene's district got reconfigured a little bit, and she got a slice of deeply Democratic slice of Cobb County. So there could be more changes on the way, but we'll we'll have to wait and see. Shani B., what else we got? Our next call is from a friend of the podcast who at one time violated the one rule of the Politically Georgia podcast hotline. If you don't leave a name, I give you a name. Well, we now know his name. It's Garrett. Garrett has a question for today's episode. Hey, Greg and Patricia. This is a previous caller calling once again. You might remember me as Aloysius or Garrett from the Cula. <laughs> and I know there's a lot of speculation with the CBS interview from Brian Kemp, whether or not in a 2024 race, whether that be as president or VP. But I'm interested in his possible endorsements. I know he's got history campaigning with Pence and Chris Christie. And I also know he recently met with Ron DeSantis. So I was wondering if there was any indication of who he'd be leaning towards endorsing or if there was kind of a greater prospect of endorsement. Great question. The the governor will likely endorse someone whose name is not Donald Trump. He might just want to support the ticket, but odds are he'll endorse it has to be very strategic. I was talking with a lower level Republican who was thinking about making endorsement. And, you know, for someone with, without the, the name of, you know, the, the big name of Governor Kemp, you know, they either want to be a part of a package deal. They want to endorse at a big moment. They might want to wait until right before the March 12th primary. For Governor Kemp, anytime he endorses, it will be huge news because not only is he a big Georgia figure, but of course he's now a growing profile national figure. As Garrett, you mentioned, Governor Kemp is close to Mike Pence. He's close to Chris Christie, I think I, he was, he's closer to Governor DeSantis than, than I believed. I, I think they actually have regular phone calls and they have, a, they have a pretty decent relationship. And he's met Nikki Haley along the way and he certainly met Tim Scott. So he has relations with a lot of these candidates. I sort of see him as a DeSantis guy, maybe Pence if Pence actually gains some traction, but he seems more lined up to be a DeSantis supporter. We'll have to see. But I, I do think he'll, he'll deliver an endorsement at a very momentous time, probably in the run-up to the March 12th primary. Yes. First of all, Garrett, you are unmasked. Thank you for revealing <laughs> your real name. It, it no sounds like a better fit than Aloysius. <laughs> no offense, Shaney B. Yeah, I agree with Greg. I mean, it's so strategic. You know, as governor, you certainly don't want to 
put your name behind somebody who has no chance of winning. So if Mike Pence isn't getting traction, if Nikki Haley's not getting any traction, both of them campaigned with Brian Kemp. Mike Pence came in the night before the GOP primary, which was hugely important because it was it had become essentially a primary between Brian Kemp and Donald Trump in a way because Donald Trump had gotten David Perdue into that race. So that was a really huge moment in the Kemp campaign that Mike Pence delivered for him. So those two gentlemen obviously are quite close. But I think we're going to have to get a little bit further down the road here. There's always a connection between those Republican governors. Kemp has known DeSantis through the RGA as well. Obviously, they are next door neighbors as Republican governors. There's sort of a fraternity of sorts that builds with these with these guys in the same roles in the same party. They're a lot closer. They cross paths more than you would think. So we'll have to get a little bit further down the road. It will definitely not be Donald Trump who he endorses. However, he did say in that CBS interview, and I found this fascinating, yet not, I guess not surprising, he would he said he would vote, not only vote for Donald Trump, would fire up his turnout operation for whoever the Republican nominee is, including Donald Trump. And that really does go to show you that no matter what has happened between those two, it's obviously not a, a bridge that's been completely burned. There is always this partisan piece of all elections that heals nearly all wounds the day before election day. Yeah, remember what happened to the former Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, who kind of waffled publicly over whether he'd support Herschel Walker, and even even a lot of Republican, not not rank and file voters, but a lot of Republican officials were giving him some grief, you know, calling him a traitor and all that. Governor Kemp still has twenty twenty eight on his mind, or in twenty twenty six, even if he's not ranked for president or VP or whatever happens in the next cycle, and if he's publicly out there saying he's not going to support the Republican ticket. He'll have to contend with that the entire 2026 or 2028 cycle for whatever he does next. So and he's taken the same tack as a lot of Republicans who still harbor electoral ambitions. Many of the high profile Republicans who say they're not going to support Donald Trump often are at the end of the road on their political careers. Jenny B., what else we got? Our last caller for the week. This is Todd in Statesboro. I understand that President Trump had some comments about electric cars and electric vehicles and basically said that he was going to repeal some of Biden's programs for that and was real negative on the electric vehicle industry. I was just wondering if anybody you talked to at the convention had any thoughts or opinions on what Trump was saying about the electric vehicle industry. Todd, that's a great question. Yes, I did speak to some Republicans. Now, these are Republicans who you could tell were not pro-Trump Republicans because they were like, Duh, don't you know anything about Georgia, Donald Trump? Because you are exactly right, Todd. The electric vehicle industry, the electric mobility industry, as Governor Brian Kemp refers to it, has become hugely important to Georgia's ambitions to really rebuild its manufacturing base. And it is certainly the ambition of not just Governor Kemp, but of mayors around the state, of businesses around the state, all kinds of people to continue to see the explosive growth in the EV industry that we've already seen. There, of course, is the $5 billion Rivian factory being built east of Atlanta. There is the $6.X billion Hyundai factory being built outside of Savannah. Factory after factory suppliers are coming in next to those very large facilities. These are going to be essentially population centers, job centers, really change the fabric of this state. There was a time 
not so long ago when the story of Georgia were the factory closures, the textile mills, the jobs evaporating, the people left behind. This is the opposite of that. It's so important in this state. We'll look back on this as a time of just of immense importance. So for Donald Trump to say among the first things he'll do is get rid of favorable treatment for EV companies, get rid of that. His reason was because who wants to drive for one hour and have to plug in for four hours? You know, that is obviously a short-sighted and ill-informed opinion of electric vehicles. I don't drive an EV, but more and more people do. And it is something that plenty of Republicans here in the state think is a fabulous industry. And the more they can get, the better. It's one of many areas that Donald Trump is not on the same page with the leaders of Georgia. Sounds like he needs to talk to Public Service Commissioner Tim Eccles about that. Who's been driving around a number of electric vehicles back before they were in vogue? Okay, now it is time for our favorite segment of the week Who's Up and Who's Down? Patricia, since we always like to end on a high note, who is your Who's Down for the week? Greg, my Who's Down for the week is not a Georgian, but she was in Georgia when she did it. Carrie Lake of Arizona issued the most ridiculous basically threat to reporters, to rhinos, to a whole bunch of people at the Georgia Republican Convention. And I'm sorry, also to prosecutors, there were just dozens and dozens of us that she wrapped up into her threat to say, in order to get to Donald Trump, we're going to go to have to go through her and 75 million Americans. And they are all card carrying members of the NRA. That's not a threat. That's a public service announcement. That's the kind of rhetoric I have no patience for. I think that's irresponsible. Even the people in the room at the GOP convention were like, okay, you know, some people loved it. Some people were really troubled by it. It's the kind of rhetoric I think that does a disservice to the voters who I think they should be taking more seriously. It's not, it's really not about the news media, but it is about the kind of rhetoric that she and others present to voters like that. And to me, that's just a big old who's down. Yeah, and that plays into my who's down for the week because I'd say the moderates at the Republican state convention, there were a lot of, there were some in that room and many of them had bought tickets for Mike Pence and before he canceled and they swapped out with Kerry Lake and they couldn't get refunds. So they were all, a lot of them were in the room unwillingly or, or, or at least begrudgingly. And when that line came out, you know, we heard from a number of them who came up to us and just said, I'm sorry. <laughs> they said, I'm sorry you had to hear that. I'm sorry we had to hear that. The mainstream Republicans who felt squeezed out and sidelined and relegated by the state Republican convention and who just don't feel like they fit into the party anymore. Those would be my who's down for the week. Patricia, who's your who's up? Greg, my who's up is Monica Kaufman Pearson, who is anybody who grew up in Atlanta remembers Monica Kaufman. She is the very first female news person I remember seeing. Actually, in addition to Celestine Sibley, who was the columnist for the AJC, and her picture was in the paper every time she had a column running. But Monica Pearson is going to be joining the AJC. She's going to be doing a whole lot of really neat things. She's just such a piece of the fabric here in the community that it is going to be, I think, for in, for people who, if you grew up here, if you didn't grow up here, it will be a huge, huge treat for Atlantans to start to see more of Monica Pearson, and that'll be happening pretty soon. Uh, you stole my who's up for the week. See, oh, we don't wow. coordinate. No, that's great. We don't coordinate, but <laughs> she's also my who's up. And, and generally, you're going to hear a lot more big news from the AJC coming up. I don't want to spoil any surprises, but under the leadership of Leroy Chapman, 
our newly installed editor-in-chief and Andrew Morris, our new publisher, they've got a lot of plans cooking. And not just for the political team, but also for a number of other facets of our newspaper. So expect to hear some big news from the AJC in the weeks and months to come. Well, that is all the time we have for today's show. Thanks so much for listening to the Politically George podcast. We release new episodes every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever big news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.